to the voice for Iowa EMS. I am your host, Andy Nye. I am delighted to bring you this guest today. He's not a board member, but he's from Iowa. Uh, we have Michael Caduce with us, uh, who is the uh, EMT program director out at UCLA. So Michael, thanks for having uh, a sit-down conversation with me today. Thrilled to join you, Andy. Um, a longtime listener, first-time caller. Um, I've really enjoyed listening to the podcast up until this point. I mean, Don helped teach some of my EMS education, John Dunham, and I still keep in touch from the EMS LRC. So some of the great people that you've gotten the pleasure to speak with, um, and that I've gotten to listen to you interview have, uh, have really set the stage for a great group of board members and a great podcast. I, I thought it was interesting when I listened to your podcast, everybody br- mentions Brian Reckimer is getting them involved in the board. And I'll add my kudos to Brian Reckimer because he's been a champion for EMS education in the state of Iowa. And I got to work closely with him when I was at the University of Iowa and he was at Kirkwood at the same time. You know, this is cool going off the, the, the path of interviewing somebody else besides board members at this point. So that's something that we really wanted to, to try to tie in some different things and some people with some, some Iowa roots. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what you're doing today in EMS. Absolutely. And I think um, there's so many great Iowans that have, that, that have spent some time in Iowa or have come from Iowa that are EMS. I'm going to forget some folks, but a mentor of mine, Doug, Doug York, who spent a great time in Iowa and founded EMS education across this country in the accreditation process, Bruce Evans, Heather Davis, David Phillips, all these great people that spent some time in Iowa and are now re- really leading the way in, in EMS. I will put my name as the as a follower of the leaders of those great minds, but um, currently I, I serve as the EMT program director. I also oversee our continuing education operations for UCLA Center for Pre-Hospital Care. That's a really big name, but in essence, we're housed in a school of medicine and we do EMT and paramedic training. Our EMT program sees nearly a thousand students every year in initial education, another 500 in, in continuing education, which makes us uh, the largest or arguably the largest EMT program in the country. In essence, we're educating that many students in, in Southern California. We have, I have an absolute great team. They get the credit for doing the work. My job is to make sure that the tools they need to do a great job and the resources they need to do a great job. We have all kinds of different programming from hybrid EMT education to accelerate accelerated EMT education. We're incredibly proud of our students. They go on and, and utilize the training they get to have a 95% first time pass through on the national registry, which, wow. yeah, it's, it's a, you know, it's a 
rather in the cap of the entire team. No, nobody gets there because of one person. And I would be incredibly foolish to think that it had a lot to do with me. It has a lot more to do with the great people that are doing a lot of the education. Beyond that, we get to do a t- uh, some training for the medical school. This David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA has really taken a forward-thinking approach in getting students into early clinical experiences, which means that we get to work alongside our first and second year medical students, giving them a taste of EMS early on to see if they have interest in emergency medicine as well. So I get to dabble in quite a few things. That's one of the perks of being at UCLA, but primarily providing initial education. So we have an Iowan that is out in Southern California leading <laughs> the charge for entry-level EMS providers at the EMT level and participating in a lot more than just that. But that's just amazing. What's your, what was your path, Michael? How did you get to this point? It's honestly a blast for all the listeners. Andy's been out there and has gotten to see our operations, so he can attest. It's um, like any other initial education program. It's most days it's chaos or controlled chaos, and our goal is just to try and keep up with it. So I got into EMS. I took an EMT class actually in 2006 in between my freshman and sophomore year of college because I wanted to work as an ER tech at St. Luke's Hospital. Shout out in Eastern Iowa, Cedar Rapids. Still one of the best places to work. I think it was absolutely one of my favorite places to work. A lot of the physicians are still there today. So I worked as a tech there while I was doing my undergrad at Mount Mercy University. Thought I was going to go the med school route, thought I was going to go become a doctor. And then actually between graduating undergrad and going like applying to medical school and everything, I went to paramedic school and absolutely had a blast. Thought it was the coolest thing ever. So that would have been 2009, 2010. I went to paramedic school. That was also at Mercy College in Des Moines. Had an absolute blast. Realized I was having way more fun doing that than any of the people I talked to that were in medical school. And um, I don't know, paycheck wise, that was probably not the wisest decision. But fun wise, it's been an absolute blast. Before I could graduate paramedic school, uh, I started doing teaching some CPR classes, some ACLS, some PALS classes. And then before I graduated, Urbandale Fire Department took a shot on this young kid from Urbandale. Um, so I started working there part-time and they put me through a fire academy. And honestly, that was a great experience. I still keep in touch with several of the people I went to fire school with. So I worked for the Urbandale Fire Department from about 2010, 11-ish until 2016-ish. So about four years as a full-time firefighter paramedic. Uh, I was doing some teaching on the side for Mercy College. So CPR, things like that. I was doing some EMT training. I taught a couple semesters. Of, I had like one class I taught every semester for the paramedic program at Mercy. I was having a blast with that. Urban was a great department, great place to get my start. Um, really taught me forward thinking, progressive tactics. Same thing with EMS. And then this position came open at the University of Iowa and I just sort of finishing my master's degree and I was thinking, you know, what's next? And Rosie Adams reached out to me. I'd taken her critical care class and I'm, there's probably no one listening to this podcast that doesn't know Rosie. So I'm not sure, probably no introduction needed there. And she said, hey, we got this position open. We'd be interested. You know, we'd really be interested for you to apply. We're really doing a lot of work here on the program, improving it. Jenny Reese was working there at the same time as our simulation person. And she had said the same thing in her and I had worked together at St. Luke's. And so I ended up applying and wound, found my way to the EMS LRC at the University of Iowa. Spent two years there, had an absolutely great time. Some great people, JD Graziano, who's worked there alongside him. It's where you and I got the great pleasure of meeting. We went to the, uh, we got to speak at the um, the Tri-State. Tri-State Emergency Responder Conference. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's where you and I connected yep. um, between that and IAMSA. So did that for two years. And then someone who I look up to a ton, Dave Page, had reached out and said, UCLA has this position open for EMT program director. And that's in essence what I was doing at the University of Iowa. And he was like, you should apply. And I was like, nobody's going to, UCLA is not 
to hire me. I'm not on that level. Um, he said, I think you should give it a shot. He was on the speaker circuit. I was on the attending speakers. Like I've attended conferences and listened to him speak. And then we'd worked together just briefly. And so I applied. And at the beginning of 2018, I managed to find my way out to UCLA. I think I caused some people to think I might be crazy when I was like, I'm going to leave the University of Iowa to go to the University of California and, you know, move a few thousand miles across the country a couple of time zones away. But uh, it was absolutely a great opportunity. It was, it was the best choice that I could have made. It's, it's opened up tons of opportunities. I've gotten to open up NAMT training centers in Australia and Singapore and Kazakhstan, the teaching all over the place in terms of conferences. Just the opportunities are there. The opportunity to do research is re- it was you know amazing, more than I could have asked for. And they were nice to me and they were good to me and they welcomed me. LA is not a scary place. It's quite a wonderful place, actually. So no, that's that's my life story in a nutshell. That's quite a bit in a short amount of time. You've you've literally done, you know, multiple different disciplines in EMS, you know, working as an ER tech in the ER and then going into firefighter paramedic and then to education where you are today. That's pretty impressive. That's uh, that's exciting and inspiring, I think, for people uh, to know that it, just because you choose one path in EMS doesn't mean you have to stay there for your entire career. And that's the beauty about EMS is there's so many different disciplines that you can work in. Oh, I, I appreciate that a lot, Andy. Um, I don't I don't know that the employers thought that way. It was like, okay, we're getting sick of Michael Caduce. It's time to send him off to something else. But I, I, I couldn't echo that sentiment. Um, we try and tell our students here too, I mean, lots of EMTs work in the back of ambulances, but lots of EMTs work on movie sets and television sets and our lifeguards and our firefighters and work in hospitals and are going to medical school and PA school and nursing school. The, the, the I think that's one of the best things about being an EMS is we're, we're very young. You know, nurses have been around since the 1800s, you know, as a formal organization, even longer than that. Apothecaries have been around since the Middle Ages. EMS has been around for 50 years. We're still figuring out where we belong. And because our industry is so unique, we fit into a lot of different places. There's hospitals that are putting paramedics, not just in the ER, but in the ICUs. And what a great um, you know role for the specific scope of practice that is uh, paramedic. So yeah, I think that's one of the best parts about being an MS is we're literally driving our future, right? It's not already set. It's not saying this is all that we're going to do. We're really getting to write the script as we go. All right, Michael. So uh, do you have any hobbies outside of EMS? You know, we've talked a lot about your career pathway into EMS education, but have you had time to do anything outside of that? I feel like that's what everybody asks. Like, what do you do when you're not working? And I'm like, "Ah, I have to figure that one out. I always try and hit the gym. I'm a big runner. So I'm just trying to do that right now. I, I've, I actually timed it a couple of weeks ago, how long it like the mileage to get from the, my doorstep of my apartment to the beach. And it's exactly three miles. I like to run on the weekends. It's what I do. Beyond that, I'm a, I'm a huge research nerd. I'm always reading something. If you look in my backpack at any given time, there's 10 to 15 articles that have been published recently that I want to read. Some of them EMS related and some of them just interesting sociology or psychology wise. I'm just like, oh, that's really interesting. Some of the new drugs that are on the market that we're looking at for EMS, but but I like spending time with family. In fact, I was back in Iowa just this past weekend for a little Caduce family reunion. But beyond that, I would say reading, trying to hit the gym occasionally. That takes the cake for what I try and do. I try and watch a little less TV. I do a little bit of bourbon collecting. So if you're ever at my house, uh, you're always welcome to have a, well, do a little bourbon pairing or something like that. So experience that when you were out here, Andy. 
that seems to be a common thing amongst Iowa EMS providers. You know, Mark McCulloch uh, down there at West Des Moines EMS, he's got a collection. Jerry Evers over there in Muscatine. That's kind of a, a like a well-kept secret. <laughs> it, well, I didn't know that. About, I think Mark had talked to me a little bit about it, but I didn't know about that, Jerry. So now at the IMSA conference, I'm going to have to give him a hard time and we're going to have to, you know, talk our favorite bourbons, but yeah. um, just some, you know, something to do in the spare time. But yeah, it's, I think EMS providers and alcohol, good way to, you know, have a nightcap, I suppose. Like, so you said you've been traveling a lot. So when you're traveling and, you know, reading books and stuff, you probably listen to podcasts as well. So do you have any favorite podcasts uh, while you're, while you're traveling? I do. In fact, I typically, uh, I'm a big fan of, there's a couple of EMS podcasts that I really like. Medic Mindset by Ginger Locke is one of the best EMS podcasts out there. I'm on an EMS podcast. So let me plug my podcast on your podcast, Andy. Yeah. Uh, I'm on the pre-hospital care research forum podcast. Uh, twice a month, we look at interesting research articles that have come out in EMS. Myself and a couple other PhD researchers evaluate the research, talk about the methods and just talk about what it means for EMS. You can, you can find that on your local iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts for pre-hospital care research forum. But I also listen to just some generic, there's a bourbon pursuit podcast that I like to listen to. There's a couple just news podcasts that I like to listen to because I feel like I get caught up on my news. EMS 2020 is a good EMS podcast that I just find is hysterical. They share calls usually that have not gone so well. Um, the two um, podcasters that do it have an interesting take on everything. So, and they provide some training and some education along the way. So like that one, the EMS Lighthouse is by Jeff Jarvis. He's brilliant. He's an EMS medical director down in Texas. And he usually discusses some research article. That's how he just did the new, there's a new trial that came out, the device trial that looked at video laryngoscopy. And so I just finished that while I was traveling this weekend, but I have more podcasts than I have time to listen to them. And I think that's where everybody should be is like, they're all accumulating in my in my queue. Yes, I'm kind of the same way. I uh, I end up listening to motocross ones every once in a while. So it's, it's, it all just gets backed up and you have to keep figuring out how, when am I going to find time to listen? Mm -hmm. All right, let's go to some some IAMSA related questions. Uh, have, have you been to any, you've been to our conference as a speaker before, haven't you? I have had the great privilege of being at the IAMSA conference and doing some speaking. And I, I enjoyed listening to everyone talk about their favorite speakers. Uh, you know, Nick and Spencer both both talked about being, you know, what a great opportunity for education. I think that's so true. I think, you know, st state conferences, whether it's Iowa or any of the other state conferences, really are the key places for our EMS providers to hear what's new, what's up and coming. Uh, I think I, I get the, you know, the great opportunity to go speak at some of these conferences, but you really have to recognize as a speaker, these conferences, like you're bringing some of these things that to, to agencies and you have to be careful what you say, because some of these people are going to go change practice based off of you have to know that like, yeah, we're confident saying this is a good thing to do. This is not a, like we've tried it. It works. What a great opportunity to bring in people from around the country to say, hey, this is a practice that we think is good or is not good. It's an opportunity to change protocols. I think it's a everybody. John Cockrell hit hit on this too. This it's it's for networking, right? It's for meeting people. It's for seeing those friends that you haven't seen in forever. You and I always get to connect and go out for a drink. But Matt Fultz and I always um, go have to hit up 801 Grand for a cocktail or two. I always try and hit up, I can't remember what the bar is downtown, the country bar that everybody goes to the one night, but always a hoot, um, but really more about connecting with people, seeing people we don't see very often and talking evidence-based practice, talking about procedures, medications, things that we haven't been doing that we should be doing. If I have to pick my favorite speaker, I, I love listening to Bruce Evans. He's been there a couple of times. Josh Stilley has spoken you know, numerous times. I, I always get the opportunity to listen to him if I get the opportunity, both him and I guess, I guess Josh Stilley seen 
senior and junior are both good speakers. Um, but Josh Stilley, the younger one, was my medical director at the University of Iowa. So if I get an opportunity to listen to him, they're at the top of my list of people to go see. So much like me, having mul- multiple favorite speakers. You know, you were one of mine. Uh, oh, I appreciate on the that. pilot podcast. I appreciate that. Um, I think I'm a big nerd and I talk fast. So um, I can predict my evals before the lecture goes. It's, it's going to say he talks fast. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm working on that. I just have so many fun things to talk about. So, but it's, it's a great opportunity to get back to Iowa and share some of the things that we know are being done across the country that are working. Because again, Iowa seems to be this hotbed of people that are leading EMS. It, it doesn't, you wouldn't think, I don't think people think Iowa when they think of, of leading in EMS practice and whether administration or education or leadership, we do. Um, it's there, it exists. So... I guess we'll have to try to get you back for our for our annual conference in 2024. I think we're going to have to try to get you back as a keynote. Huh? Let me know where I can submit my talks. I have a few good ones. Um, I, I have some references. Andy and I reference for conference speaking. What the listeners don't know is Andy and I run into each other at state conferences or the national conferences, even if we're both just attendees. And we usually have these solve the world's problems conversations somewhere in the at a local beverage um, adult beverage place or at a food vendor, like even I think at Expo, we just talked in the lobby of the cafeteria for an hour, but yeah, there's, yeah. I think that's the big benefit of these conferences where you get to see people and you might be walking in a hallway and you might spark up a really good conversation and, and, you know, you might learn something, you know, where you can either bring back to the school you work at or the service that you work for, you know, that's, that's a big benefit of attending these conferences. Absolutely. And it's the processes that make it work, right? I, I would tell, I tell our team all the time, we don't have enough time to make all of our own mistakes. We have to listen to some of the other people that have made the mistakes and, you know, learn from them. So I think that's the, oh, we want to implement this program. We want to start the, you know, we want to start ultrasound. How do we do that? Well, you need to connect with this person because they've already done it and they can tell you the hurdles you're going to have to climb over in order to implement it. So you have that ahead of time. I think that's huge. So Michael, what what are you most excited about for the future of EMS? Wow, that's a profound question. Uh, I'm going to go back to this is one, we are one of the newest professions in healthcare and our scope of practice is unrepeatable anywhere else. So we really have the opportunity to write our own future. We we don't know where EMS will all go. And as we start looking to the future, we're certainly always going to be responding to emergencies. There's always going to be people having strokes and crashing cars. We have to be prepared to manage that staffing-wise and pay-wise. And we'll, we, well, I'm sure we'll get into that as we go as to talk about the biggest challenges in EMS. But we have a unique opportunity to respond to our community. And not everybody in our community that needs our help is suffering from an emergency. So as we start to look at mobile integrated health, healthcare and combination of community health worker, we really have to start saying, okay, not every person's calling 911 needs a trip to the emergency department. Maybe they need a sobering center. Maybe they need a behavioral health center. Maybe they need rehab. Maybe they just need a welfare check. Maybe they need their vital signs checked in, in connection with a pharmacist or connection with a home healthcare aide. We really have a unique perspective where we should be able to do all of those things. And I think we're starting to see where agencies, progressive forward thinking agencies are starting to do that and saying, well, and, I mean, and here in LA, we're doing it. We're sending nurse practitioners and PAs to people, especially some of the high-end users and saying, okay, we're calling 911 almost every day or every couple of days. Where's the stopgap there? Do you need 
contact with a primary care physician? Do you need transport to a pharmacist? Like what, what do you need so that you're not utilizing this 911 emergency service? And every program that's tried it, it's worked. It's just figuring out what the need is and then connecting the resources in the community. We're not going to be the one that has all the answers, but we have to be the one that can connect the person with the answers. And oftentimes that helps us in the long run because it means we're not responding to the 911 calls. And that means we can reserve our units for the emergency. So I think that's one of the fun parts is to start thinking about where we fit. The pandemic has shown us that. Shocking. EMTs can give IM injections with a little bit of training. I don't think that's mind blowing to anyone, but it took the pandemic to really show us that they could and that it could be widespread. And, uh, you know, we we had our paramedics running the vaccine clinics and we had them running the testing centers. That's part of the federal government's natural response plan for a disaster like this. But I think it showed the, you know, the country at least that, hey, our paramedics fit into this scope of practice already in the community. They can do this. And with a little bit of training, we can add to their scope of practice. I mean, giving, we had, there's agencies that were giving the antibody treatments, starting infusions. I mean, what better resource for a community and, and to demonstrate that you can do that in a time of need. So I, I think that's the cool part is our future is unscripted and it's up to, you know, the people of the AMSA board, the, the great leaders in EMS to really start saying, where are we going to go from here? That was a great answer, Michael. And that made me actually think of what somebody else has described EMS or healthcare and what it means to healthcare. Uh, Jamie Pafford, uh, the owner of Pafford Medical Services, says EMS is the Swiss Army knife in healthcare. We are adaptable. We are. Uh, we can. We have a lot of different tools, and we can fit in a lot of different spots. So everything you just described makes me think of the Swiss Army knife analogy that she always brings up. Oh, I think I think that's so true. And and I I mean, Pafford, what a great example of a nationwide ambulance service that's doing a great job out there and, and, and setting the tone for what we would expect EMS agencies to do. Um, the thing that comes to mind there too is adaptable and flexible, right? We meet the needs of our community. People will always have been, I feel like sometimes we have these conversations about helping our communities and mobile integrated healthcare. It's like, I signed up so that I could drive the ambulance with lights and sirens. Those, those days are not going anywhere. People are always going to make decisions that get them in peril and then they need emergency services. We will always be doing that until we can figure out how not to make cars crash and people not to have heart attacks. We're going to be responding to emergencies, but there has to be an ability to help our community in other ways. And somebody's going to step up and do it, right? There's going, this is a problem. Someone's going to step up with a solution. It seems to me that EMS is well positioned to play in this ball game. And, and we were already seeing agencies do it. It's not my idea. I'm not the one saying this is what we need to do, but I think that's what's out there. Yeah, you're right on that. There's no there's no one size fits all EMS system approach, right? It's really designed to fit around the community needs after a good community assessment on what's actually needed in that EMS system. So that's a good that's a good example. And I think uh, the future of EMS, there's a lot of things that are dynamic and ever changing. And I, you, you're right, we are a young industry. And I think we're just going to get more adaptable and, and find more places where EMS does fit into uh, the different uh, facets of healthcare. So along with the future for EMS, Michael, uh, what do you think is the biggest challenge that we are facing in EMS today? 
I'm, I'm going to answer to Sandy and then I'm going to turn it on its head and ask you because I think you have a very unique perspective to see this as well. That EMS administration is not a place I dabble very much. It's not a, um, because I think it's a lot more headaches than anything. It is. Um, why I don't do it, which is why you do it. So I'm, I'm interested from your perspective on it too. The thing I see as the biggest challenge for EMS is, is pay. I think paying our providers what they truly deserve to be out there. I mean, they're spending time away from their families. They're, they're making life and death decisions on a daily basis. Um, and yet you can, likely go to In-N-Out or McDonald's and make just as much as, as an entry-level EMT. I always tell people, this is a really easy problem to fix with a really hard solution. It's like saying, well, how do we get from point A to point B? Well, we build a bridge. The building of the bridge is what's incredibly complicated. So when people say, well, what's the solution? It, well, it's a really complicated solution. Uh, it's 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 better pay. The way we get there is the really complicated part. So it goes back to reimbursement. Are we getting what we deserve? Again, we probably shouldn't just be taking people to the hospital, but our current reimbursement process is set up that way. And again, I'm going to defer to you because you understand this. You dabble in this all the time. I'm just trying to train the entry-level providers to meet the workforce shortage. We see it across healthcare. We don't have enough nurses. We don't have enough doctors. We don't have enough EMTs. We don't have enough paramedics. But I think we could see more EMTs and paramedics if we paid them better. And again, it's not my solution. There's people that are doing it. The agencies that are recruiting really great employees are offering not just good pay, good benefits and good work-life balance, right? We Every single person you've interviewed, and I'll put, you know, put my name on the list, I eat, breathe, and sleep EMS, but they have multiple jobs in order to make enough money to pay the bills. And if we expect our people to live long enough to retire and enjoy the benefits they're making, we have to be able to ensure that they're doing that and they've got ways to deal with stress and manage that stress and prevent that burnout. So I think better pay is the is the thing uh, or is the is the biggest problem we have is that we're not paid enough. The solution is to pay more. The way we get there is pretty complicated, but I think the federal government is working that way. I'm going to throw in one more plug, which is because I'm the nerd and the, you know, you and I are both nerds, but um, I'm going to say the nerdy answer is we need evidence-based solutions, just like the hospitals have. If you get a pneumonia from an, um, an intubation in the hospital, then you your reimbursement changes. It's a bit more complicated than that, but in essence, that's the outcome, right? We need that in EMS. It shouldn't just be how quickly did you get out the door? How quickly did you get to the call? It has to be, did you give to the patient having chest pain? Did you do a 12 lead within the first 10 minutes? Did you meet the American Association standards? Did you talk your did you track your quality of chest compressions with your monitor? Because we know those things have independently been proven to be predictors of successful outcomes in patients. So I expect you to be doing that. I couldn't care less, you know, if you got out the door in 90 seconds or not, if you didn't give the patient who was having a heart attack aspirin because the number needed to treat on that is like less than five. So those are the real quality measures that I think need to come to EMS that'll help with reimbursement that will help, you know, get us to better pay. But I'm interested in your opinion after I, you know, talked from, as after I went on for a few minutes. Yeah, I think I think the, the pay is one of the biggest challenges as well. I think you're totally right. We need to have more qualitative measures in the reimbursement structure. Uh, we've been acting on the fee for service, fee for transport much too long at this point, and there's no competitive advantage. ABC Ambulance gets paid the same as XYZ Ambulance. 
ABC ambulance might buy a $300,000 ambulance and XYZ might buy an $80,000 ambulance and they get paid the same. So there's a lot of different components to the, the reimbursement system at this time that needs to be challenged and changed. I think adding qualitative measures is a good start. I think things with uh, accreditation, ha having services be accredited as a benchmark to get paid at a higher premium uh, for reimbursement would be a nice way to start. But we really do need to get out of this this fee for for transport type type model. And it really got started based on, you know, with Medicare fee schedule back in 2002, which is what every other insurance payer really decided to go off of, is there's a base rate for the type of service provided, whether it's BLS, ALS, and emergent, non-emergent, maybe specialty care for critical care. And then there's a mileage charge. So when you look at that, it's very logistical in nature. You know, you might think of like the trucking industry. That's very similar based on, on mileage pay. So that's kind of how it got started. And unfortunately, that's that's not uh, making things work today, especially since there hasn't been much of an increase in the Medicare fee schedule uh, since its inception in 2002. Uh, which you can imagine the the expenses for running an ambulance organization has skyrocketed, especially since the pandemic. And there's no way to charge more for that. So we really need to get away from this, this ambulance fee for transport type methodology. Uh, there's some other programs out there that really help uh, to help cover the costs that uh, are lost in some transports where uh, there's some supplemental payment programs with uh, Medicaid uh, benefits uh, for those patients being transported. But right now in the state of Iowa, you can uh, get that covered if you're a government-owned entity. But if you're a non-governmental EMS agency, that you can't uh, apply those costs uh, and get supplemental payment for it. So there's a lot of inequities right now, uh, just in the ambulance uh, reimbursement for supplemental payment and just the Medicaid structure. Uh, but then there's also a whole problem with, with commercial payers. Uh, we used to get a, an increase in reimbursement every year from uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield Walmart. And since co the COVID pandemic started in 2020, there hasn't been a, an increase. So there's a lot of things that need to be done. Uh, we recently had some meetings with, as far as the Iowa EMS Association, with some stakeholders in the state of Iowa, with the Medicaid office and health and human services. So uh, we have kind of a little bit of a, bit of a plan for next legislative session, and we're going to be meeting on that to really try to make some change happen. Uh, because I do believe if we can change the reimbursement structure, then we can pay more for EMS providers, which I think we can become a more attractive field uh, for people again. And people always say, well, you know, we work nights, we work holidays, we work weekends, but we've always done that, you know? Yeah. So I think that our pay has just not kept up with the times and we really yeah. just need to figure out how to, how to change that. Well, that's really interesting, Andy. And again, it's, it's not my, that's not my wheelhouse. I don't spend a lot of time in it, but I'm trying to think as you talk about this comes from 2002. I'm like very few things that we did in 2002, are we still doing it the same way in 2023 and 21 years, things change, things evolve. I'm, I'm glad to hear that there's a plan, at least having those conversations. Um, and, 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 I'll, and I'll share, I, I always hear people say, you know, I didn't get into this for the money. I'm not doing it for the money. I'm doing it to help people. I couldn't agree more. 
there's nothing that brings me more joy than helping someone who's sick feel better. And I think, you know, the 95% of EMS providers would agree with me, but you have to be able to eat. And if you can't eat, it doesn't matter how big your heart is, you're going to find a job where you can pay the bills. And it's tough, especially in a, in a fairly, you know, intensive volunteer system, which we see in the, in rural America, mostly in the Midwest and the South, but like, well, people are going to do this for the goodness of their heart. Uh, I, there are people that will this put, put both of our names on that list as, as former volunteers for different agencies. We did it out of the goodness of our heart, but we have to recognize that the future of this system depends on people being paid for a service. No one's going to school for a year or two to become a paramedic to then go work for free. I wouldn't expect that of you. I don't expect that of someone. If you can get paid $16, $17, $18 an hour to work at the grocery store or to to mow the grass, they're going to do that because we have to be able to feed, you you have to be able to feed yourself, your family have to have a place to live. So that's one of my big pushes is we want people that are compassionate providers, but we have to provide, this is a service. This is an expected service. Uh, You know, Iowa being the first to say this is a, this is an essential service, Mm -hmm. huge, but we have to be able to pay people. Yeah. And I think there's always some providers or uh, some people out there that say, what about, you know, paramedics being required to get a bachelor's degree? Well, I, th- I think that would be a great idea, but could we get reimbursed for that at a, at a higher premium rate if you have paramedics who say have have more education? I know that's a big, that's a big question yeah. to try to, to come up with an answer, but that's more my wheelhouse too. And, and, and here's the deal. I don't want paramedics to go have to go get a bachelor's degree. I think what we should, I think, but I think as paramedic, you should have training in things besides EMS. You should, you should have, gosh, um, documentation really, really important in this industry as a paramedic, being able to do math, fairly vital skill. I think a sociology class and a psychology class are incredibly important to EMS. But what I, what I don't want people thinking, oftentimes we hear this is like, well, e- paramedicine should be at least an associate's degree, but that means I'm gonna have to go take a bunch more classes. No, that means we need to count the classes you took. If you add up the clinical and the field time, the internship time, the capstone time, and the time that our paramedics spend in the classroom, you get to an associate's degree plus. You don't have to go do more training. You already did it. Um, the numbers have been demonstrated time and time again. And this is why so many community college programs, their paramedicine program is an associate's degree. Because if you con- if you count the contact hours, which is how you calculate credit hours in a, in a community college, you know this, you get to an associate's degree. It's not that we're going to make you go take more classes. It's that we are, but we accreditation brings value because it brings benchmarking. And when the uh, National Registry of EMTs passed the requirements several years ago that in order to sit for the National Registry, you have to come from an accredited program, there's a lot of pushback from that. And there's still a lot of pushback from that. I hear it today that, well, why is an accredited, it's, it's more hoops you have to jump through, it's more things you have to do. Yeah, it's things like ensuring you have a financial aid office so that we can ensure students who may not be able to write a check for paramedic tuition have an opportunity to go to paramedic school, but it also that brings in federal funding, which is really helpful at fixing a workforce shortage problem. It ensures that you have accurate faculty to student ratios. So I'm not doing an EMT class with one instructor and 60 students. Those aren't evidence-based practices. I mean, it ensures things like you have a well air-conditioned and heated building. You, you don't learn well when it's 90 degrees, but that evidence has been around since the 50s. So I, 
think one of the important things though to recognize is with accreditation brings benchmarks and with benchmarks, we bring quality. That quality is what brings the pay. You said it. I want the EMS agency that's showing up with the, with the person in uniform who cares about their appearance, because if they care about their appearance, they care about the patient care they're delivering. And if you're responding to my family's house or to me, I want you to care about the quality of patient care you're providing there should be a way for that to be recognized, whether it's with a fee structure, whether it's with a reimbursement or whether it's just with the community saying, hey, we're going to hire this agency or we're going to call this agency because they have dedication to, to quality. And that's benchmarked. It's proven. It's data. I can look at it up. I can publish it. And I mean, it, the same requirement that required accredited programs, also the accreditation requires that you publish your pass rates for EMT education programs. I tell everybody, if you're going to go to an EMT or paramedic training, look up on their website what their national registered pass rate is. I want them to make you a great provider. I, I tell everybody our EMT program is designed to make competent, compassionate care providers. You got to be competent to pass the national registry. And that's step one. If we can't do that, we're not going to help you get a job. And so if we can, so if you're looking at EMT program or you're looking at a, at a training program, you should be looking at what's their licensing rate. The same as we do for nursing, we do it for medical schools, we do it for PA school. Everybody can tell you what their national licensing rate is. It's healthcare. Everybody takes a big exam at the end. We're no different. Every health organization is accredited. We're no different. We just aren't there yet. We're still young. We're still getting there. So, Michael, a common question as an educator uh, that you might get is how do you keep up with the the clinical changes? That's a great question. And, and I think we we ask this of every healthcare provider, whether you're in the hospital or the pre-hospital setting, is is medicine's ever changing? How do you stay up on it? How do you know? And and I'll be the biggest fan is I, I've got a lot of studies and we can look at a lot of studies. In fact, one of the classes I teach is like, what's the research say? So we start talking about what does it say? But the way we start that off is saying one study doesn't prove much. One study may get the ball rolling, but it took about 10 years for us to have enough evidence to take backboards off of ambulances. Not necessarily, we had to prove that they weren't that effective. We had to prove that we didn't hurt anybody by getting rid of it. So it doesn't really do its job, but we had to prove we weren't hurting anybody by taking them off the ambulance. So I think one of the things that, I mean, I'm a big fan of research. So that's why we have a podcast that looks at it. Um, you don't have to go subscribe to all the trade journals. They're expensive though. If you work at, you know, a community college or an academic center, a lot of hospitals pay for journal access. So you can sign up pre-hospital emergency care is sort of the big one in EMS, but the Annals of Emergency Medicine publishes pre-hospital specific documents. You can actually sign up on their websites where they'll send you their week, their monthly or their quarterly publication. You're not going to get the full article, but you get the abstracts. And usually you can figure out enough from the abstract. If you want to read the actual article, you can then go download it because you have to pay for that part. But at least you can get start looking at the abstracts and saying, gosh, this seems really interesting. Um, then I might go to my medical director who works at a hospital who likely has some journal access if I really want the article. But it's it can be even easier than that. In EMS world, we publish articles on research and what's out there. There's Facebook groups. There's um, Instagram accounts that talk about research. A lot of them will look at articles and say, this thing changes practice. Again, I, I, it takes lots and lots of articles for me to come out and say, this changes practice. You, you have to have a lot of data that really looks at the same thing. Again, research has, in order for it to prove something, it has to be recreatable. Can someone else get the same results under the same settings? Um, so that's one of the things I look for is if we're seeing the same data suggesting the same thing over and over, then it's probably worth evaluating the practice. But one article that makes the headlines, a lot of them in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest right now, does epi make a difference? Does your airway make a difference? And 
what all of them continue to say is it's a bundled approach. You have to do everything really well. Um, it doesn't matter what airway you use. If you're not doing good compressions, it doesn't matter when you give the epi, if you're not, you know, perfusing the patient. So um, it takes a lot of work to make sure that all of that works together. But continuing education classes, PHTLS, AMLS, those update every four years. The AHA updates their stuff continuously. Um, so I think sometimes we get in the mind um, of like, oh, it's ACLS, I have to take it every two years, whatever. But take an ACLS experience provider class that's research driven too and has tons of case studies in it. Take an NAMT class because those are all research driven. Um, and then read the book because all the data is cited. The latest PHTLS textbook that came out last year, they removed the kit. If you want to know, why go read it. i think we probably all know why no one's using it no one's benefiting from it but go read the data on why they took that out because it's all cited and it's all there and it's written by physicians amls is going to roll out I, I get the great pleasure of sitting on the amls committee so they got a special place in my heart jeff mazaro good solid iowan who's done ama- i mean he he started advanced medical life support from the namt amazing guy just wanting to get people to be to care more about medical skills and, and the medical side of ems made this class in the NAMT publishes it. It's thousands of people take this class every year. Um, it's translated into several different languages. Started by a gentleman in Western Iowa who's who's just one of the best people I ever meet. So I, I I think continuing education great way to get more research. Social media that has different EMS specific content great way to look at research. You can actually subscribe to the trade journals and get that information. I share my contact information every conference I speak at. If you want an article, I have tons of academic access at UCLA. We can probably find the article that you're looking for and get a PDF copy to somebody if they're looking like, we want to change our practice. Our medical director wants some research. Can you help? We can probably find something to help get you some evidence. That's what you're looking for. So that's that's how I stay up on it. I do a lot of reading on it, but it, there's a lot of open access, free research out there as well. And you, if you listen to the podcast or follow the social media, the really popular articles all get picked up. We do it for PCRF. We pick up the most popular articles that really do have change in them. So hopefully we'll try and then, you know, go from there. So since you're you're so involved with EMS education, this might be a question that some other people might have. So the National Registry is doing some different things, updating you know, the the paramedic exams, things like that. So what do you know about the new processes that are coming out and what should we all be prepared for? Um, so little, actually. I get the great privilege of, of listening to what the NRMT has to say, just simply because we have to train to their standards. There's a couple of things that I think the NRMT is doing really well. And uh, the you have to have a national licensing body. The NRMT gets a bad rap and they don't deserve it. Their goal is to make sure that before someone responds to your loved one's house, there is some level of entry-level competency. And I get it. Taking a multiple-choice written test may or may not predict how well you can take care of a patient, but it's what we've got. And if you don't like it, then follow the NRAMT because they're trying to make it better. But the NCLEX does this. The step one and step two for physicians does this. It's a multiple choice test that forces you to regurgitate a ton of knowledge and to critically think. There's there's not a different way to do this, but there is some different ways to ask questions. And that's what the registry is doing. So I want to get into that. But I think the other big thing that they did several years ago was what's called a practice analysis. So I always think it's funny when I'm doing scenarios with students and when I'm watching other educators teach, they'll do like that. 
okay, your, your patient's being, you know, was attacked by a, a T-Rex dinosaur and these are their injury patterns. And I'm sitting there like, that's not realistic of what that, like, that's the most unrealistic scenario. Like if there's a dinosaur attack, promise we're not calling 911, right? Like someone else is going to respond to that. And you're like, well, it's not a realistic scenario. So it's really not testing my student's competency in anything. A practice analysis looks at the number of calls that are run and what their chief complaints are. And then says, we should ask people about those things. Again, you're going to run on about one in every hundred calls is going to be opioid related or one to two per 100 calls. At least one to two calls you run out of every hundred is going to be a STEMI. Another one's going to be a stroke and like less than five out of every hundred is going to be a motor vehicle, right? Like that data exists. So we should make sure you're really good at treating an opioid overdose and a heart attack and a motor vehicle collision. So orthopedic trauma, head trauma, as opposed to the patient who fell off the ladder and landed on a knife in their back. Because that just doesn't happen. It's certainly not happening enough where we should be testing every single EMT or paramedic in the country on it. So practice analysis is we should be testing people on what's actually going on out there. And that's how we start with the curriculum and say, okay, these are the things we think you need to know. That gets you away from some of the really obscure diseases. And again, some of the just unrealistic scenarios. The other thing that the NREMT is doing and actually have already put out there are questions where you have to pick multiple answer choices. I think that's beneficial. Certainly the data would suggest that saying picking two of three or three of five is beneficial because nothing is that easy in EMS that there is evidence to suggest that's a good way to ask questions from an educational standpoint. And then the other thing is they're incorporating into it more situational tests. So you're treating a patient, this is what you see, and they're gonna show you a picture. And you have to figure out, is that petechiae, is that uticaria? Here's what you hear for your lung sound. So you have to hear wheezes and then pick the treatment that's associated with it. I think that moves the needle on the expectations for what an EMS provider would want. Not only do I expect that you can connect wheezes to asthma in the back of an ambulance, but up until this point, we haven't really expected you to listen to wheezes. It's been on the educational program and hopefully everyone's doing that. But now we're saying, okay, here's you're hearing wheezes and you're connecting it to a treatment. And they're using good evidence-based practice to do that and good, you know, good images, good sounds, all the things you should do. But those are two of the things that they're doing that I'm from an educational standpoint are, are really well, well, very beneficial and saying, this is what we should be doing. And it's going to prepare people to better provide. So all the people out there that are saying NRMT doesn't prepare you to be a real provider. Well, they're trying and they're moving in the right direction. Um, we just sort of have to get there from an educator standpoint. It's going to challenge us to say, okay, you better make sure they know what wheezes sound like, not just connecting wheezes to asthma, but they have to be able to hear wheezes and connect that to asthma. And I think that's where we need to be. I will 100% say we need to have our students connecting those dots. If you had to give a new EMS provider or prospective EMS student any advice, what would you tell them? Ooh, advice. Good question. No one should be asking me for advice. The one thing uh, that would definitely start with is this is the absolute best profession in the world. There is no other occupation where you get to interact with someone that you may do chest compressions on and then see them a couple weeks later, or that simply transporting them to the hospital, even if it's just a kind word in a conversation, and they will remember you for the rest of your life, right? Like my accountant doesn't get that. Even even if in in the the most stable patient in the world, just having a conversation with somebody, helping them off the ground, again, they're going to remember you for the rest of the world. And I think that's huge, Um, which which in my book is why I think this is the greatest job in the world. What advice would I have for them? Coming with an open mind. And uh, because I'm in education, I always say, be prepared to be a lifelong learner. 
healthcare medicine is constantly changing. It's ever evolving. That's the way it's supposed to be. So you have to be ready to change practice. We never want our EMS providers to get in the mindset of this is how we've always done it. So this is the way it's always going to be. Again, it's by design that healthcare is ever evolving. The way you get your appendix out today is different than the way you got your appendix out five years ago. The treatment for diabetes is different today than it was five years ago. That means the way we treat a patient having a stroke in the pre-hospital setting is different than the way it was five years ago. Um, and that's that's true to form. We have over a dozen ambulances across the country that have CT scanners on them. Now, do I think that's coming to every ambulance? No, but I, I, I think there's lots of things on some ambulances. There, there's anti-venom on a lot of ambulances. There's a lot of places where that doesn't make any sense and they don't need it. There's ECMO ambulances. We will now take specific candidates that have high outcomes for cardio, uh, co- uh, uh, heart-lung bypass and cannulate them in the pre-hospital set. In fact, the, one of the first things to do was Minnesota, right? Like just to the North, like it wasn't, it wasn't New York. It wasn't LA. It wasn't Chicago. It was Minneapolis, Minnesota. The University of Minnesota came out with that, where we'll take someone who has a high chance of recovery from cardiac arrest, put them on heart, lung bypass, take them to the hospital and they'll, they'll make a, you know, they have a higher chance of outcome than if we just did, you know, refractory V-fib treatment in the pre-hospital setting. So, but, th- but that's the way it's supposed to be. And not every place is going to have an ECMO machine and an ECMO ambulance, but there are places where we can prove the benefit. Uh, we have a mobile stroke unit. We have an ECMO unit in Los Angeles. UCLA has the mobile stroke unit. You can go on their website. They will share with you all the data on how this is paying for itself because patients don't have to go through rehabilitation costs that they did if they because they had to wait during transport or wait in a waiting room because they're taken by private car. So that would be the thing. So the advice I now that I'm thinking about, I got two. So one is being a lifelong learner because that's the way it's supposed to be. But then care for your community. Uh, I think sometimes we feel like once we've been in this business long enough, we get salty um, and we sort of stop caring for people. And, and it's just a huge pet peeve of mine. Again, you called me. I don't care if it's 3 a.m. and your things, you know, your pain's been going on for three years. I'm here. I'm not going back to bed. Why don't we get it taken care of? For some reason, it was bad enough at this moment for you to call 911. And I happen to be the paramedic that's standing across with you. And I may not have the solution to make it go away forever, but I definitely have a solution of, well, let's make sure it's not going to be something that's life-threatening for you this second and take you to the hospital or get you set up with a primary care provider who can take care of you. And, I, and I, I'll be the first to admit, that can be tough after running call after call after call and seeing some of the things that our providers have to see. It can make you... It can it can really lead to some mental spaces that we don't want to find ourselves in. It can lead to burnout and, and, you know, ask for help if you need it. But I really would encourage you always be forward thinking, always be a lifelong learner, and then always care about people, no matter what their circumstance, no matter what their life situation is at the moment, you happen to be the MS provider standing across the room from them or across the road from them treat them like a person and provide them some level of compassion and care and the dignity because they're another person. It's what we try and instill in all of our students. It's what we as educators try and role model for our students at UCLA. And it's something that I would encourage every healthcare provider. You you, you won't go very far in this business if you don't care about people. Because you asked me, Andy, and I haven't, I've listened to all the podcasts and I've not heard your advice. And and I I consider you an expert and a leader in this field. And I always, I've shared you this numerous times that you, you say such profound things that I'm like, oh, I didn't think of that. I could have said it like that too. Um, What's your advice for future EMS providers, those thinking getting into the field of EMS? Yeah, really put me on the spot for that one, Michael. But no, I... 
I think for if I'm talking to a new student or talking to somebody getting into the EMS field or is interested in in learning more about it, I would I would tell them to to be prepared to enjoy the ride. It's a it's a long journey, you know, it, what it feels like to become an EMS provider, even though it's relatively short, you know, shorter education uh, as far as time. But when you get your certification and licensure to be able to practice EMS, you can do so many things. And I think the biggest thing is don't be afraid to be challenged and jump outside the box at new opportunities. Uh, I think that in this field, you can get very complacent in a role uh, and not challenging yourself anymore. And I think that's when you need to maybe do a quick self-check and go, okay, maybe I need to do something different here. But there's so much opportunity in EMS, you know, whether you're you're in it for being a provider, taking care of people in their in your community. Uh, that's obviously what a lot of us get into this for. But some of us might not stay there, right? But you can go into EMS education, which we need to train our next trainers, right? Like that's a big thing that we're we're, I think we need to work better at, especially in Iowa, uh, to help, you know, maybe feed our system of educators to make sure we're, we're producing good quality EMTs and paramedics in the state of Iowa. I also think that if you want to get into to something else with with the, the whole billing side of things, if, if that stuff uh, really sparks your interest, there's, there's billing services out there uh, that you can get involved with. Dispatch uh, agencies are really struggling. So you can do so many of those things, but if you, maybe if you want to get outside the area, there's nothing really holding you back. I mean, you can be a, a paramedic on a cruise ship. You can be an EMT at an airport. You can, you can do so many different things. If you're, if you're interested in snowboarding or skiing, go to, go to the Colorado Rockies and get a job as a ski patrol or something, you know? So my biggest advice would be if you feel complacent in a role and you have opportunities to look elsewhere, well, check them out and don't be afraid of the challenge. So I think that's huge again. You just you say things so profoundly, and I'm just like, God, I wish I could say it like that. The opportunity is endless, right? In essence, you you can get into this field, you can do something different, and and I I will join you in the fight to get more people into EMS education. I don't think it takes as much as sometimes we think it does. I mean, if you've listened to Doug York talk, if you've listened to lecture to him speak, if you've listened to Mike Hartley lecture um, an EMS topic, I, I'm trying. There's so many. I'm I'm leaving so many people out, but you can sit in a classroom and hear those these people deliver content just so profoundly and leave just being like gosh I want to I want to be able to articulate a concept like that um, and I want to walk away and, and be able to have, have spoken words we would tell our EMS folks that they're great paramedics and EMTs but they're also great educators you, it, it takes a it takes a passion and a little bit of of finesse to get up in front of a crowd and deliver content articulately, and and as well as some of the the you know the great EMS educators have in the past. I, I don't know how we get them to their point, but I think we need we we have to start by providing a realistic expectation of what EMS is all about. There's lots of lights and sirens. There's lots of you know hopefully driving safely but quickly. The, you and I can go on for another hour about lights and sirens if use if we wanted to. Our next podcast maybe. <laughs> That's true. Podcast number two. Why not to use your lights and sirens all the time. But I think having a realistic expectation of here are the different opportunities for you as the EMS provider. Again, the ones you mentioned, the ones we've discussed today, there's so many good things out there that you can do. It's not just working in the back of the ambulance. It's not just shootings and stabbings. It's people suffering from all kinds of medical problems, many of which are not of their own choosing. And even if it, even if you chose to drive your car too fast and crash, 
you still get help and you still get to go to the hospital and you're still going to get compassion from me. Um, I just want to say thank you so much, Andy, for inviting me on the podcast. Um, I guess it avid listener. I just think the world of Iowa and of Iowa EMS, these are my, I have almost all my family lives in Iowa, which means the EMS providers that are living in Iowa are the ones that are going to respond to my family. I certainly extend the opportunity. There's anything I can do for the agencies of Iowa and EMS. And anytime I get to speak in Iowa, I was like, so anything I can do for you, please call. Cause again, you're the ones that are going to respond to my family members. And uh, I want those people to be the best trained EMS providers that are out there. I know they're bringing compassion. I have the opportunity to help provide just a little bit more content. I want to be able to do it, but uh, thank you for the opportunity to join it. The work you and the board are doing is just great. And if I can get back and and run into the conference, be thrilled to be able to have that opportunity. Well, Michael, we appreciate you sitting down and going over some of these questions with us. And I think this is going to be a pretty good hit for our listeners. And like I said, I think we're going to, we're going to have to get you in here back for 2024 uh, for for our annual conference, so so I'll make sure to to be on the the lookout for that to get you the information you need. So again, thank you, and thanks for sitting and talking in today. This has been this has been a great great episode, and I can't wait to get it out. Thanks, Andy. Take me home to the place I belong, cause I miss you, miss you, and I wish you would take me home. Take me home